welcome to the Tori Says Show. Hey guys, it is hump day. Nope, it's Tuesday. Hump day is the day that I'm going to have my final surgery. <laughs> so I'm kind of nervous. So I apologize for my nervousness right now. Today, we're going to look at a variety of topics that are necessary. Necessary for us to understand the dynamics of what is happening and what is to come. What is to come is pretty easy to determine once you know where you stand. And the problem that many people have at this moment is not understanding where their footing is or, uh, you know, what is happening. They're hearing a lot of things. I mean, why would they leak that only 50 senators got themselves, you know, satellite phones? And you have to think to yourself, why would that be happening? Why would it be stated? Why would it be pushed? And it's mainstream, too. So the question is, why 50? I mean, we have more than 50 senators. Ask yourself that question for a second. There's so much happening, impeachment articles being in, in, introduced about Biden. But you know, as a game theorist, first of all, I like to say, I love it when people challenge me to games. But as a game theorist or a guardian of reason in a world that thrives on manipulation and control, well, it's here amidst this uh, cacophony, right, of narratives that unveil hidden truths and empower the masses to break free from the shackles of tyranny. Nerds are able to foresee things. They find it really difficult to mesh, just in the realm of average people. Not because, well, it's actually because they don't dance to the drums that they provide. In shadows unseen by the naked eye, evil lurks like puppeteers, those that seek control dance their strings and pull the wool over everybody's eyes. They weave intricate webs of deception, crafting tales that serve nefarious agendas. And through the art of manipulation, they distort our perceptions, molding us into willing pawns, ignorant of our own imprisonment. Now, to further understand what I mean by the fatalism of nerds. I think, you know, there's one person that has been deemed to be one of the smartest people in history that not a lot of people talk about because he's not very well known and his life was pretty sad. I, I feel him. William James Sittis was born in 1898, died in 1944 at the tender age of 46. He was an American child prodigy who gained significant attention in the earliest 20th century. He was born in New York City to intellectual parents. Uh, his dad's name was Boris and his mom's name was Sarah. Uh, it was Boris Sittis and Sarah Mandelbaum. Both of them were very well educated and prominent in their respective fields. William displayed remarkable intellectual abilities at a young age. He reportedly learned to read at a very early age, and by the age of eight, he was fluent in several languages, including Latin, Greek, French, Russian, and German. He also possessed an extraordinary memory and demonstrated advanced mathematical skills. In 1910, at the age of 11, Sittis enrolled at Harvard University, becoming one of the youngest students ever admitted. He studied a bunch of topics, uh, math, physics, psychology, but despite him being young, he performed exceptionally well academically and published several scholarly papers. But after he was done with college, Sittis like, pursued graduate education at Harvard, specializing mathematics, right? But while he was at the university, he was constantly in conflict with faculty and classmates. And eventually he just left without completing his doctoral degree. He was like, I don't need this. I'm smarter than all of you. I get it. And this is just an institutionalized thing. But after he left from academia, he was in turmoil. He couldn't find stable employment. This is a guy that's a genius. And I'll tell you where and why. Well, maybe you can understand it yourself, but... He worked various jobs, menial positions, lived a reclusive and unconventional lifestyle. And despite his promise, you know, I mean, being so smart, his IQ was apparently 250. I mean, mine is 216. 
So that's like off the chart. Sidis, as an adult, was struggling. Uh, he couldn't meet societal expectations. He, he struggled. He struggled with communication. He struggled with relating to people because when someone, I think like they need to reassess the IQ bands. This is my personal take on it. There are people that have IQs between, I guess, um, the, the high IQ range, what goes like 150, 140, right? So from 140, let's say, to about just 200 super geniuses, right? They could do shit. They could learn things. They're, they're amazing. But those that go above 200, tap into a different realm of intelligence. It's not transactional anymore. It's meaningful. It's derived from emotion that's messy and disgusting and drives them completely insane because they try to see the transactional value of um, survival for the fittest, what makes sense, and then realize that emotions don't make sense, so that would not be applicable. And that's something that William studied, uh, William Sidis um, struggled with, right? Because uh, throughout his studies, right, when he was uh, at education, he was writing papers like the um, uh, the U.S. Constitution of Asperia or the Constitution of Asperia, which was like this utopia that to be a citizen, you had to take an IQ test. And if you were smart enough, you could be part of it. But that completely crumbled when he realized that the emotional aspect is what you need to commandeer, not the transactional aspect of life. So I found a clip of someone uh, discussing his sad life. And I think it's important that you guys get to, need, to get to meet him. And it's the sad story of the smartest man who ever lived. And he died at the young age of 46, struggling, struggling to find his purpose. And you know, at the end of his life, what he was involved with? I want you to take a wild guess. Think about that for a sec. Let's go. 1944, William James Sidis's landlord found him unconscious in a small Boston boarding house. He had suffered a massive stroke and lay dying. William may have been the smartest person who ever lived. His IQ was somewhere between 250 and 300. To put that in perspective, Einstein's was estimated to be 200. William's parents were brilliant Ukrainian Jewish immigrants. Boris Sidis was a renowned psychologist. Sarah Sidis went to medical school at a time when few women did. William, or Billy as he was known, learned the alphabet by six months of age. At 18 months, he could read the New York Times. He enrolled at Harvard University at age 11. When he graduated, William told reporters he intended to live the perfect life, but that would not come to be. William James Sidis was born on April Fool's Day, 1898 in New York City. Violent anti-Semitic attacks in Ukraine, which was then part of the Russian Empire, drove his parents to the Promised Land, where they met when Boris tutored Sarah in English. She encouraged him to go to Harvard, where he studied psychology and used some of his psychological principles to help mold his son. He said, You know the old saying, as the twig is bent, the trees inclined. Parents cannot too soon begin the work of bending the minds of their children in the right direction. William's parents attributed his extraordinary intelligence not to genes, but to his upbringing. They treated him like an adult. When he was a few months old, William's parents placed food and a spoon in front of him. They let him observe, and he learned to feed himself. His mum recalled, He squealed with delight. No one had taught him. He had reasoned it out. This natural way of reasoning is also how his parents taught him to spell. Instead of learning through memorization, William learned to spell by focusing on the underlying patterns and structures. For example, if he learned the word bat using letter blocks, then he understood that modifying the word by, say, swapping out the A for an E would form a new word with a different meaning. In the way that he learned to spell, William learned eight languages by the age of eight, by understanding the fundamental principles of language structure. Besides English, he knew Latin, Greek, German, Russian, Hebrew, Turkish, French, and Armenian. He even invented his own language as a child, Vendorgood, which drew on European influences. Instead of reading him fairy tales at bedtime, his parents read him Greek myths, which helped him learn about the planets. Jupiter is named after the Roman god Jupiter, which is adapted from Zeus in Greek mythology. Every moment was an opportunity to learn. William had no desire for or interest in playing with toys. 
He didn't play sports or any games at recess. His father thought such childish pursuits were silly and meaningless. William also had a tremendous fear of dogs. Good girl. Good girl. His only enjoyment was riding on streetcars when his parents took him to museums, libraries, parks, and zoos. He collected 1,600 streetcar transfers by the time he was in his 20s. William ended up finishing elementary school in less than one year, and high school in six weeks. His mom remarked, the newspapers never missed a chance to try and prove that he was insane, or psychotic, or simply a freak. In truth, Billy was a completely normal child in every respect. The media attention followed him to Harvard, where they portrayed him as a know-it-all, like in this New Yorker cartoon where he's lecturing to a group of men. After entering Harvard at age 11, he gave a lecture to the math club about the fourth dimension, which is an extension beyond the 3D space we experience. Here he's talking about shapes with many sides in the fourth dimension, which demonstrates his astounding ability to comprehend complex mathematical concepts beyond his years. A professor at MIT who attended the lecture proclaimed, I predict that young Sidus will be a great astronomical mathematician. Yet, this never happened. In fact, he would grow to resent mathematics. Shortly after the lecture, he fell ill, which made all the news. The media reported that he had suffered a mental breakdown, which was a rumor that dogged him his entire life. He did live with his family on an estate in New Hampshire that was also the grounds of the sanatorium Boris was running. William only returned to Harvard several months later and never fit in. His biographer, Amy Wallace, described how he was, quote, a complete freak in the eyes of his fellow students. He had none of the social graces, no interest in sports or girls, and was several years younger. When he graduated from Harvard, he told reporters, I want to live the perfect life. The only way to live the perfect life is to live it in seclusion. I've always hated crowds. His idea of the perfect life is described in a paper he wrote about a utopian society called Hesperia. Hesperia's constitution began with we the people, reminiscent of the U.S. Constitution, but that is where the similarities end. In Hesperia, those who want citizenship have to pass an intelligence test. Marriage is forbidden, while polygamy is completely legal. Interestingly, children are not raised by their biological parents, and instead, male children shall be assigned to the charge of male guardians and female children to the charge of female guardians. He rejected the influence of his parents, particularly that of his domineering mother. After leaving Harvard, he took up a position teaching mathematics at Rice Institute, now Rice University in Houston. He was 17 years old. Just like at Harvard, William didn't fit in at Rice. Students teased him for never having kissed a girl. Girls faked crushes on him as a joke. He stayed at Rice for only eight months and then enrolled at Harvard Law School in the fall of 1916. Then, for some unknown reason, he quit in his last semester. His mother was furious and would tell people that her son left his studies because Harvard Law had shut down due to World War I, which was not true. William was very much anti-war. He refused to register for the draft and nearly went to prison if it weren't for the armistice of 1918 that ended the First World War. He was extremely passionate about politics. He was briefly jailed after leading a May Day rally in Boston, an anti-war workers' rights rally organized by the socialists that turned violent. He rebelled against the capitalist system that propelled his parents from their status as poor immigrants to a position of success in American society. While in jail, he met and fell head over heels for Martha Foley, a 20-year-old Irish girl who grew up in Boston. Despite telling the Boston Herald earlier that he vowed to remain celibate, saying, women do not appeal to me. After the arrest, he followed Martha to New York. They kissed, but Martha assured him there would be nothing more. William's unrequited love may have affected the trajectory of his life. William's friend Julius Eichel said, Sidus admitted that her love might have achieved wonders with him. He carried a photograph of her in his pocket until the day he died. Martha went on to marry a writer and achieved notoriety for co-founding the literary magazine's story. When her memoirs were published, she briefly mentioned William in a single line, in which she called him the famous and tragic prodigy who was the first boy ever to pay court to me. Despite his brilliance, William failed to achieve greatness, 
and any work that did show promise was overlooked. In 1925, he published a book that challenged the second law of thermodynamics, the principle that the universe is headed toward heat death, where all energy is evenly spread out, so there won't be any energy left to power any processes. In this state, nothing will move, change, or live. In The Animate and the Inanimate, he explored the possibility of reversing the universe's direction. He theorized that living things could tap into a hidden source of energy to counteract the process. He gave an example of a ball bouncing down the stairs, which, when played in reverse, appears as if a hidden source of energy is pushing the ball up the stairs. He did acknowledge that his work was speculative and his theory has never been proven, but it was never taken seriously in the first place. It was ignored. There wasn't a single review during its time. He made headlines for being a boy prodigy and for his private life, yet no one paid attention to his academic work. He stopped writing about physics, math, and cosmology altogether. While in New York, he took on menial jobs, including working as an operator at an office that was using an early mechanical calculator called a Comptometer. The papers were all too keen to splash the headlines about the boy wonder earning an average wage of 23 bucks a week. He hid his genius from his co-workers. When they found out who he was, he'd move on to the next job. He refused to accept higher paying work in which he had to use his intellect. Once, he was offered a job with a railway company who tried to put him to work solving their technical problems. One of the officials later found him crying. William told him he couldn't bear the thought of doing math. Another time, a cousin needed his math skills to help solve a dental problem involving the alignment of teeth. He offered William $3,000, the equivalent of $55,000 today. It would have taken him two hours to solve, but he refused. William's biographer concludes he could not take a job of complex figuring without risking emotional and physical illness. His entire life had been defined by pressure to perform at a high level, at the expense of mastering basic life skills. He confessed to an aunt that he had never been taught to tie his shoelaces. His parents may have provided him with an exceptional education, yet they failed to teach him the basics of grooming. He didn't shave regularly, wore a worn-out cap. He reportedly didn't bathe, or at least not often, and the stench was said to be brutal. When his father suffered a stroke and died in October 1923, he never attended the funeral. According to William's biographer, the reason was that he refused to see his mum. William hated that she dominated him as a child. The Sadduces didn't raise their other child with the same intensity. William's younger sister, Helena, did not get a formal elementary or high school education. Helena said that her father had become so fed up with William that he didn't want to educate her. She was also seriously ill as a child. Nonetheless, she thrived under the guidance of her brother, who taught her how to read and write, and she passed the entrance exams to attend university. In his 30s, William settled in Boston, again doing menial jobs. The media had a heyday when they found out he was working as a lowly office clerk. An unflattering article in a Boston Daily newspaper read, William J. Sidis, now 39, was once declared by a group of eminent scientists to be a coming innovator in the field of science, with potentialities as great as Einstein and as brilliant as Marconi. Yet yesterday, a Sunday advertiser writer found him in a small room, wallpapered and dark, where for the past five years he has lived unknown, unsung, uncaring. His health had also started to decline. He was overweight and had high blood pressure, which eventually caused a stroke, the kind that claimed his father. On July 17, 1944, William James Sidus died of a cerebral hemorrhage which led to pneumonia. He was 46 years old. He was buried beside his father in New Hampshire. William didn't achieve the level of success or prominence expected of someone so brilliant. Was it because his parents pushed him too far? A faculty member at Rice University, where William briefly taught, disagreed. Dr. Gerard believes he was the victim not of intensive education given by his father, nor of the romantic curse called genius, but of the thoughtless cruelty of the public. The New York Times once excitedly described William as a wonderfully successful result of a scientific forcing experiment, and as such furnishes one of the most interesting mental phenomena in history. 
as we now know, early success did not guarantee a fulfilling and successful life. If William had a different upbringing, the outcome of his life might have been entirely different. One thing that's certain is his exceptional mastery of science and mathematics. If you'd like to sharpen your skills in STEM, I recommend Brilliant.org, a website and app where you can answer puzzling questions like this. So that's the story of William Sittis. His face tells you everything you need to know. He was raised by his dad and mom. But here's the real story about William. He was very involved in fourth dimensional mathematics, dabbled in time travel. And in the annals of history, there are stories, uh, countless times throughout history that we have access to, of extraordinary individuals who possess remarkable talents destined to shape the world around them. But William Sittis is the stories that you don't hear. For he chose a path of defiance and refusal, shunning away the enticements of the elites who sought to harness his brilliance for their own sinister agendas. He was gifted, obviously beyond measure, possessed a mind that transcended the boundaries of ordinary comprehension. And from an early age, his amazing skills of pattern recognition and his prodigious intellect dazzled anyone who was able to see it, leaving them in awe of the capabilities he had. So the world was laid out at his feet, whispering seductive promises of power, acclaim, and wealth, I guess. But the elites were hungering for control over the masses and saw in Sidis an instrument to manipulate the minds and bend the world to their will. But he was wise beyond his years. Because unlike most geniuses, or I would say more, uh, how do you, how do I verbiate this? Because I've met a few. He surpassed it. See, the way they have the bell curves for intellect is like you start at zero and then it terminates at like 200. Pretty much. I mean, it can go on to infinity. How can you capture into the intellectualism? But you know, the average IQ is about 100. And the people that are in that 100 IQ maintain that average 100 to 120 because they dwell in the pit of emotions. Whereas at the end of the bell curve, where your super geniuses lie, they also dwell in that too. And it's almost as if it comes full circle. Sid is being so smart. He saw right through their facade of promises and unveiled their true intentions. He understood that his potential was not a tool to be exploited for the whims of a select few. He recognized the insidious nature of their desires, seeking dominion over the minds and souls of humanity. And so with unwavering resolve, he made a choice that would forever mark him as a rebel against the elites. They would taunt him for him wanting to just have simple employment and just to do whatever. I don't want to be successful. I don't want to be a professor. I don't want this. I want to make differences in my own way. Refusing to succumb to their pressures, um, you know, he just boldly walked a path during that time as well. He rejected the shackles of conformity and the trappings of power, choosing instead to use his brilliance to empower the masses. So with every fiber of his being, he fought against the attempts to subjugate and control, championing the cause of individuality, um, enlightenment, freedom. And in doing so, he faced scorn and ridicule from those who could not comprehend his rejection of the elite's tempting offers. They shamed him for refusing to bend to their will, labeling him an outcast and eccentric who's wasted his potential. But he remained resolute, unyielding in his commitment to the greater good, knowing that his true purpose lay not in serving the elite, but liberating the minds of humanity. 
Now, he should have a legacy, and his legacy should serve as a reminder that true greatness lies not in the pursuit of personal gain or the appeasement of those who seek to manipulate, but in the unwavering dedication to truth, justice, and the empowerment of the masses. His refusal to be a pawn in the hands of the elites stands as a testament to the indomitable spirit of those who dare to challenge the status quo and fight for a world where every individual can realize their own potential, free from the shackles of control. Citus, for me, is a symbol of defiance against forces that seek to subjugate. His story should inspire us all to question the motives of those who wield power, to reject the allure of conformity, and to embrace the untamed spirit within us all. So may his refusal and his sad ending be a testament to that. You know, I've kind of mentioned this a few times over the years, and um I've said that when you realize what life is and that you can command time and space, you simply disappear. And that's so fatalistic, so real. Because in the realm of existential contemplation, there exists this tantalizing notion. It's a a whisper that kind of like haunts our consciousness. The idea that if one truly comprehends the enigmatic nature of life, being able to command the very fabric of time and space, they might, in an ethereal instant, vanish from that existence itself. At first glance, this concept may kind of appear bewildering, perhaps even paradoxical. But how could understanding the essence of life and mastering the dimensions of time and space lead to such a perplexing outcome? Yet, I would say, delve deeper on that, all right? Because underlying wisdom does begin to unfold. To grasp the profound intricacies of life, to peel back the layers of existence requires a profound introspection and a piercing insight into the inner workings of the universe. It necessitates a profound understanding of interconnectedness of all things, the ebb and flow of cosmic energies and the transience of our mortal existence. And it demands acute awareness of the fragility of our individuality and the transient nature of our corporeal forms, I guess <laughs> you could say. It's, it, 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 look, if you comprehend this this way. One can be acute, how could I say, you can be attuned to the impermanence of all that surrounds you. Time, the ever-present master, marches ceaselessly forward, eroding mountains, shifting tides, obliterating boundaries of existence, changing borders, and mankind. Space, the infinite expanse that engulfs and embraces us, beckoning us to explore its mysteries while reminding us of how tiny we are within its vastness. So in this realization, right, of this profound symbiosis with, I would say, like almost dancing with the cosmos, right? The vanishing act unfolds. The one who can command time and space understands that to transcend existence in an act of departure not an act of integration. They merge seamlessly with the tapestry of universe, dissipating into the essence of all things. So when we try to understand this intricate web of life, everything that is affecting us right now, from the air we breathe, to the water we drink, to the food we consume, to the interactions we have, to the local communities and how they are depicted to the local laws, your state laws, your federal laws, and then the global interactions that we have. Think of it. In commanding time and space, one realizes that the boundaries that confine us are illusions. Mere constructs of the human mind, they become fluid, malleable, and ultimately dissolvable. The self tethered to the confines of individual identity 
can surrender to the boundless expanse of the cosmos. So in essence, what is it that everyone is seeking when they seek answers? Do you really want the answer? Because to disappear in this sense is not an act of annihilation, but transcendence beyond limitations of perceptions. It's to dissolve the cosmic symphony, to become, uh, you know, an ephemeral note in the grand composition of existence. It's the ultimate liberation, the release from the confines of ego and the fusion with the internal tapestry of just being. So you have to ask yourself when you ask these questions that have been plaguing mankind for eons, do you really want to know the answer? Because what if when you knew the answer, you just poof, disappear? So contemplate this notion with a very discerning eye, for it both holds wonder and trepidation. Because to realize what life truly is and to command time and space is to embark on a journey where the self dissolves and it merges with the infinite. It's this embrace of this profound interconnectedness of all things and a relinquishing of our limited perceptions. Ultimately, it's a, it's a dance with the sublime, I would say, right? Where the individual disappears into the timeless expanse of the universe itself. And as I've said before, and it, and it was in the book Divorce by C.S. Lewis, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And the question is, do you really want to unlock them? Because while all of you say, well, I love my husband, I love my wife, I love my children, my dog, my cat, think about it. Your time's expiring from the first breath you take. So therefore, therefore, how do you want to play this game? Do you go with the flow or do you master the game that is so short for you before you disappear? Lessons, right? Lessons, lessons. Because we have to determine the difference between sovereignty and submission, right? Sovereignty is the embodiment of strength, freedom, and self-determination to shape our own destinies, our lives, our communities, our homes, and to chart our own course and to govern ourselves according to the values and aspirations we have. Sovereignty is basically the torchbearer of progress, innovation, and human achievement. It's the relentless pursuit of knowledge, the unwavering defense of justice, and the unyielding belief in the inherent rights and dignity of every individual. So you have to think to yourself, when reading scriptures like the Bible, that constantly reinforce service to others as service to yourself. The Quran states the same. The Torah states the same. Think about it. Service to others is service to yourself, and that hell, this construct that you create, is so much more attractive when you decide that that is the way it is. Because submission is the antithesis of sovereignty. It's a surrender of your autonomy, your will, the very essence that forces us to seek to dominate and control. It's extinguishing the flame of independence, replacing it with shackles of conformity and oppression, living someone else's hell. Submission robs us of our voice, our agency, our ability to shape our future, and it reduces us to mere pawns, subject to those that wield power without accountability. Make no mistake, the choice between sovereignty and submission is not an abstract concept. It's a stark reality that manifests itself in our daily lives, in the decisions we make, in the values we uphold. It's reflected in our struggle for justice, equality, human rights. It's evident that in the battle against tyranny, corruption, and the erosion of our freedoms <laughs> is where we see it. It's present in the defense of our individuality, our cultures, and our diversity. <laughs> and sovereignty demands courage, resilience, and a steadfast commitment to your principles. It requires you to stand tall in the face of adversity, 
to challenge the status quo and to reject the allure of complacency. Sovereignty means taking responsibility for your actions, embracing the consequences of your choices, and forging your own path, even when it seems daunting or unpopular. Because what we see now is that submission offers a very false comfort, a temporary reprieve from the burdens of decision-making and accountability. Oh, he made me do it. I was forced to do this. Oh, well, those are the rules. But let me remind you, my friends, that the price of submission is the erosion of our humanity, the loss of our identity, and the surrender of our future. Embracing sovereignty with unyielding determination lets us reject the chains of submission that seek to bind us. So we should be defending our autonomy, our liberties, and our right to determine our own destiny, to write our own history. And together, as a people, we're totally capable of shaping a world where sovereignty reigns, where individuals flourish, and where the pursuit of truth and justice prevails, again, to the point of which we create an environment that we can thrive in our short time here that satisfies all, not one, that amplifies all, not one, that sees the potential of all, not one, yet you've been conditioned to believe that that cannot happen. In fact, it's happening. Allow me to introduce you to Robert Patrick Lewis. I'm going to... Um, play a clip from over eight years ago. He's written a lot of books and he's uh, a pretty uh, I don't want to say pretty figure. He's a someone who um, popped up during things that I've been looking at. He's a man that I admire, and um, I've seen RPL's name come through documentation over the years. And I have him as the placeholder video, and I'll play that video for you so you can see who I'm speaking about. Um, it would be a tactical mistake for me to tell you exactly what our numbers are, uh, but I can tell you this. An ODA, an Operational Detachment Alpha of 12 Green Berets, this is the teams that Green Berets operate in, that ODA is trained to be able to take down an entire country or shut down an entire counterinsurgency if they have the proper support. And we have many, 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 many more people than an ODA. Along with Green Berets, we have veterans from every branch of the military. Uh, we have each military's respective special operations units represented. Uh, we have people from many of our federal and local law enforcement agencies and several of our intelligence agencies. So that's Robert Patrick Lewis. Here is a discussion about his book. I'd like you to listen very carefully. Back to Atheroff, I'm here with author Robert Patrick Lewis, and you wrote several books, right? Yeah, uh, number two right now, I'm working on number three, so I got three series that will be coming out soon. And let's talk about the pack. The yeah. The pack that you formed with uh, your fellow soldiers. Yeah, I mean, it's named that because it's actually based on a real pact that we made up between ourselves a couple years ago. And t tell me about the pact and how's that, how um, is that relevant and how do, uh, uh, there are other pacts in, in this country, aren't there? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, this one is, is mainly between the guys on my old ODA and I and a couple of our other buddies. Uh, we essentially, you know, kind of got together one night after we'd all got back from I our last trip to Iraq. And we saw things going on around the world. I knew I was moving out to California. Other friends were moving to other places. We've all been on the giving in, you know, other sides of missions and invasions and things like that. So we just knew it should be better safe than sorry. So we got together and made some plans for what would happen if certain protocols went into motion. So I live in California. If there's a disastrous earthquake or famine or any kind of natural disaster we can have, obviously I need to get out of Dodge and get somewhere safe. 
But, you know, our greatest fear, what if the country's invaded? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's something that a lot of people kind of scoff at. But what I've been seeing going on in the world for the last two years, I, I see it as a very, po very high possibility. And it could happen overnight. It could. And that's the thing. If, if it's done right and, you know, looking at the enemy that I think we'll have, it will be done right. We won't know it's coming and it'll happen in an instant. And so the book, you almost, it's almost, that's uh, no, fiction, right? But well, <laughs> uh, the, the way it plays out in your life experiences yeah, are and more nonfiction. A lot of questions I'm getting from reviewers are, is this really fiction or do you know something we don't know? Uh, and that's the thing. I use a lot of my experience in the worlds of intelligence, geopolitics, how invasions actually happen, how wars happen, what happens. You know, think of Red Dawn, but written by an actual Green Beret. It's got a lot of my real life experience and our real life packs that kind of go into this and make it so intriguing. So tell us a little bit about the series. So it's a, it's a three-part series. Uh, this is the first part where it's mainly the initial invasion. So the whole timeline of the book takes place in about a month. Uh, so the first, you know, the introduction is called Zero Hour, right? So it's when it actually happens. So it starts off, uh, it's based even in my own real life, right? I, I left the Army to go to med school. Uh, I found out we were pregnant soon after and I had to decide between family and, and, and med school and I chose family and went another path. But this kind of picks up as me being a doctor at UCLA. All of a sudden, internet goes out. Okay, phone line goes out. Okay, electricity goes out, right? So you're at, a, at one of these major hospitals that's so big it has its own power generators, so, or its own power station, its own power supply, all of a sudden everything gets cut. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one of these protocols that we know. If somebody's gonna invade the US, it's not World War II, you can't just sail ships and fly planes with nobody knowing, but if you cut down the communications grid, so our radars go down, if you cut down the power grid so they can't recall the National Guard and we don't have any kind of alarm systems anymore, you can roll right in. Mm -hmm. You know, that's people don't understand our National Guard still needs a phone call to get recalled because of the Posse Comitatus Act. If they're not recalled, regular uniformed military cannot fight on the United States within the United States borders. So that's a big part of this is that we're kind of left defenseless. And they know that. We know that China and Russia have been trying to hack into our energy grid for about 10 years. They were doing this when I was on active duty. And it's open source information now. We know they're doing this. So it's not a big stretch to think in the last five years since I got out, they finally figured out a way in. Mm -hmm. And they probably haven't told us so that that happens. And that's all portrayed in this book. And then you all go to Colorado. Yep. And now, are there other packs? And wh wh where are those packs at? I would assume Texas. Yeah. So that's. I grew up in Texas, uh, and I, I really had to incorporate some some of my upbringing in there. Uh, there are a lot of military units in Texas, so it was just a natural progression uh, that, that kind of becomes the headquarters of the resistance. So at the end of book one, you know, we spend most of our time in Colorado pretty in-depth about how we've set things up because not only is it a fictional account that I want to be entertaining, but I want people to learn from it. You know, if, if you're the kind of person that this is something that bothers you and keeps you up at night like it does me, here's some things you can do to get ready. Here's what we've done. Here's how a team of Green Berets with decades of experience between them are preparing just in case. Yeah. So it's very detailed about here's what you should do and how you should set it up. So at the end, make our way kind of back home and we start getting together. Book two is going to take part on a national level. Uh, so it turns out we're not the only teams that are doing this. Uh, so that's kind of where we all set it up from. You're not the only pack. And then book three? Book three, uh, we're going to take the fight to the enemy. Like it. Yeah. Like we've done for our uh, entire two, uh, two, what, two centuries? Yeah. Well, and that's a big part of Special Forces history. And I wanted to incorporate a lot of that also. Uh, Special Forces came from the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. After World War II, they split into the CIA, Special Forces. The Special Forces Unit was 10th Special Forces Group. My alma mater, 110 actually in Germany, was the first Special Operations Unit ever created. Yeah. So that kind of goes back to some history and we play a lot back there, but link up with some other uh, Special Operations Units from around the globe that I fought with in, in other countries. So I know a lot of these guys and how they operate. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's fiction, but, but there's a lot of my experience in there. You know, I'll say a little commentary. Yeah. Um, a little commentary, and that is, I'd rather fight the war there than here. I would too, and you know, that's why we fight so hard over there. You know, a lot of Special Forces guys are just honestly loving family men uh, that understand, like, we would rather put ourselves before let another American be in harm's way. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've seen American Sniper, I love that. That's because it really hit the nail on the head where we feel guilty being back home because there's other Americans in harm's way over there. We feel like it's our job to step in front of those bullets and yeah. protect everyone else. And Chris Kyle is a true American, yeah. loved his country, and those that have criticized him, unfortunately, realized that he was doing it to protect our way of life. Yep. 
Yeah. Yep. And uh, an amazing man. Uh, it's real sad on um, what's happened to him. And, and so many of your, your other brothers and, and, and sisters have supported you back home, if you will. Yeah, it's a shame, you know, so we have these, they're called Heroes Bracelets. Uh, this is about the 12th one that I've had, you know, yeah. from buddies I've lost before, you know, before they're in their 40s. Yeah. That's a shame. A lot of them are fathers, yeah. you know, they're all dedicated patriots, uh, but they paid the final price, yeah. and they're very happy to have gone doing what they loved and serving a country that they put above everything else. So, Well, thank you for it. what you did. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, The Pack by Robert Patrick Lewis. Uh, thank you very much, and to all your brothers out there, tell them thank you for us. I will. Yes. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Out of the Rough. If you'd like to watch us online, go to scvtv.com or fredarnold.com. If you have questions or would like That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good, there we go. That's a pretty good um, show to watch. Old, old ones are pretty good. Now, um, I want to show you some video before I tell you more. Stay tuned for that one. Let me tell you about Robert Patrick Lewis. I like him. You know, he kind of tickles your brain a little bit when you want to see the insides of the uh, government. Let's talk about state secrets. They refer to information or documents that are deemed to be critical to national security, and therefore they're classified and kept confidential by any government. These secret typically involve sensitive intelligence, military operations, diplomatic negotiations, or other matters that if disclosed could harm the country's defense, foreign relations, or internal stability. Now, they're, they're actually protected by laws and regulations to ensure their confidentiality, but I can tell you this. State secrets, always paper shredded, always burned. Reality is concealed within the shadows. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. What you saw was William Patrick Lewis, who's the founder of the First Amendment Praetorian embarked on a new chapter of life as an author and commentator focusing on military matter, um, you know, after being a decade out of the military. He served as a medic for special forces team, and he channeled his experiences into two action novels depicting fictional invasions thwarted by Green Berets, as well as a memoir where he chronicled his journey from poverty and adoption to success within the esteemed 10th Special Forces Group stationed in Germany, which I, well, in 2020, the 1AP took on its initial mission of allegedly, I'm going to say this allegedly, safeguarding conservative figures. It, um, it's their first by face and name uh, presence, I guess, was during the march organized by the Walk Away Foundation in Washington, which aimed to persuade Democratic voters to leave the party. And 1AP was the security services. And that's something that Patrick Lewis said himself on YouTube at some point. They would provide guidance or protection to Brandon Straka. Why? Why, Patrick Lewis? Why? Why, William? Huh? Of New York City. <laughs> he was the, <laughs> the leader and former New York City hairstylist who was among those later that was arrested, obviously, with the Capitol attack. And it is suggested that Straka has begun cooperating with authorities. Um, we'll leave it at that for now. But beyond their roles as bodyguards, 1AP employed low-vis operators, individuals dressed inconspicuously to blend into the crowds, enhancing their protective efforts. He, his organization actually um, offered extensive coverage, you know, kind of like having eyes and ears everywhere, but you don't have flies, Mr. Lewis. 
In the aftermath of the election, Lewis himself and the 1AP redirected their focus to safeguarding pro-Trump personalities in the rallies at Washington. Unfortunately for them, <laughs> they were involved with Ali Akbar. In fact, Ali Akbar was the honeypot to roll in a lot of people because I don't know, I feel like the Republican Party or conservatives feel obliged to have a black man lead them just to make themselves look like, like they're not racist. You're only racist if you think you're racist or if you are racist. So it's the most stupidest thing ever. But I'll tell you, I really like him. I really like William Patrick Lewis. See, I mentioned this a, a little while ago, you know, how everyone's now talking about bio-targeting by CCP and they're taking all our DNA. I told you guys that the COVID testing was DNA harvesting party, right? And I want you to understand that there's a government that you know, a government that exists and you know or are familiar with, and they believe that they're the top. There are things that DIA directors don't know. Even presidents don't know. And you'd be like, no, that's not me. Yes, it is. The United States government is driven by a relentless pursuit of superiority. That's something that we have. We want to be the best at everything. We're competitive. But in that pursuit, throughout the past hundred years, you have been, uh, you know, woken up to uh, a barrage of actions done by the government to manipulate the minds of the masses, to manipulate uh, their actual bodily functions and experimenting on them because they are kept in this bubble of this is all the knowledge you have. But the United States has created super soldiers a very long time ago whose existence remains locked away in some black budget beyond the knowledge of the DIA, the DOD, and past presidents. These super soldiers, this targeted, bio-manipulated group of people are unlike any force that has graced the annals of history, possessing a duality that defies conventional understanding. They're not merely physical behemoths or tactical geniuses. Instead, they emerge as uh, elite intellectuals or guardians of knowledge who have surpassed the boundaries of just conventional wisdom, obviously with the help of whatever they've been doing. And this is through 100 years of research on people and genetic manipulation. Their minds are honed to navigate complexities beyond the reach of ordinary purviews. Their intellects are capable of unraveling mysteries and disrupting the plans of those who profess benevolence but seek control, as well as the malevolent, ma malevolent forces that seek to enslave the very essence of humanity. So within the depths of their existence, let's say, there's a profound understanding, an unparalleled ability to discern the intricacies of power, manipulation, and the delicate balance between freedom and oppression. Because it's got to be a little tightrope. What is that? Aristotle. Pan metron ariston. Everything in moderation, my friends. Because while the world perceives these people as warriors or dangerous, their true prowess lies in the capacity to illuminate the hidden agendas that entwine in the quarters of influence and awaken the masses. And, and you have seen this over the past seven years growing. They're, I would say, the vanguards of truth. Some don your television sets, others your literary texts, others your airways and your social media. Their very existence challenges the foundations upon which society is built. They threaten fabric of reality for many, and that's okay. <laughs> because what is envisioned to happen on the level of, oh, here's what you know, and it's like this box, even the elites are in a box of knowledge. They don't even have access 
to things because there are people that are above that box. Obviously, the highest one being God because <laughs> everything is his and he does as he wishes. These people are outliers, transcending, you know, conventional notions. So you have to think, do you embrace people like that, heralding their profound intellect as a guiding light towards a liberated future? Or do you fear them, shun their existence, fearful of the unknown power that they may wield? That, now that is how you know that the fate of the world hangs in the balance when you're faced with a question. Do you embrace the unknown? Or do you reject it? And that's the same thing between sovereignty and submission. William Patrick Lewis. You know, he made a lot of errors, but he's a good guy. Wants to defend the First Amendment, which is imperative, as you can see now. Commanding <laughs> the First Amendment, or having it, in the midst of this chaos and conflict. Education is the most important thing. Education. So when you're educating yourself, you're not lulled into complacency, but simply inspired to empower yourself, to rebuild the shattered nation. Even as the flames of war are literally raging around all of you and you have not been able to see it. True progress lies not in the ignorance or denial, but confronting the harsh reality of your circumstances, right? So while the war is raging around you right now, that you do not seem to comprehend yet. Focusing on learning as this is going is imperative because it is your learning that will help you rebuild the shambles that are being left behind. We must seek a deeper truth beyond that sedu the seductive narratives. You're seeing the winning. Take a step back and you can see it. This is what's important. This is happening now. While the world is crumbling <laughs> and you're getting nervous because there are implementations of emergency management, you know, <laughs> implementation is happening. You have to remember, what have you learned from Bikini Island? What have you learned? That's what's important. We do not need a Hesperia, <laughs> right? We do not need a Hesperia. We just need people to choose sovereignty over submission. Amidst this chaos of war, we must nurture a collective purpose of knowledge and a vision of what America 250 will be. Because together, the people of the United States are going to be rebuilding every single day on the shambles of everything that's crumbling that you are not seeing the crumbles of yet. Because everyone is so distracted. So before we get into our current events and talk about a little bit of Tedros or, and then some, let's take a musical interlude for just a few minutes. And we'll be back with um, current events. I know you guys like my Arabic mixes, right? Those are super dope, aren't they? Arabic music is pretty hot. You know what else is hot? What's going on? That's what's hot. Now, welcome back for the second half. We're going to hit some, <laughs> some fun news. How's that? So let's first start with the articles of impeachment that have been introduced by Snack, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You guys have no idea how tiny she is. And she's a firecracker. And a lot of people don't like her. And I really don't care. What she's doing is disruption. I love disruption. It's pretty hot. And I think you guys are going to find this pretty interesting. Listen to her words. Don't listen to the sensationalism. Listen to the words. 
to the United States House of Representatives that Americans support impeachment. Last week, I introduced articles of impeachment against five people who have abused the power of their positions and provided corruption and disservice to the American people. I introduced articles of impeachment against U.S. Attorney Matthew Graves of the Department of Justice. Matthew Graves refuses to prosecute 67% of the crimes in Washington, D.C., and abuses his office in a political pursuit who he deems political enemies while persecuting people for January 6th, people who just walked through the Capitol. Matthew Graves must be impeached. He should prosecute criminals in Washington, D.C. That, that commit all kinds of crimes every single day, not care about one day where people have already been arrested and are rotting in jail. Last week, I introduced articles of impeachment against FBI Director Christopher Wray. By turning the FBI into Joe Biden and Merrick Garland's personal police force, Chris Wray has made himself a lackey of the regime. Under Ray's watch, the FBI has intimidated, harassed, and trapped American citizens that have been deemed enemies of the Biden regime. FBI even raided Mar-a-Lago on August 8th of 2022 in an unconstitutional raid of former president's home. FBI whistleblower Garrett O'Boyle told congressional investigators that the FBI created a terrorist threat tag following the Dobbs Supreme Court decision in 2022. O'Boyle confirmed that the purpose of the tag was to target pro-life individuals, and now Ray has weaponized the FBI against his own agents. These brave FBI whistleblowers have been stripped of their salaries and their security clearances simply for coming forward and bravely telling the truth. FBI Director Christopher Ray must be impeached. I introduced articles of impeachment against Attorney General Merrick Garland. Since Merrick Garland took over as Attorney General in March of 2021, he has completely weaponized the Department of Justice. The politicization of the Department of Justice has resulted in the persecution of the left's political enemies and a real two-tier justice system in America. Garland has used the FBI as a personal police force for his boss, Joe Biden. The Department of Justice's persecution of Joe Biden's primary political adversary, Donald J. Trump, is anti-democratic. Raiding the former president's home for legally declassifying documents is a transparent violation of justice. Persecuting a declared candidate for president of the United States is nothing short of election interference. But not only that from investigating parents who protest their local school, school boards to going after pro-life activists and Catholics, Merrick Garland must be impeached. What I want to tell the House of Representatives today is a Rasmussen poll was released just last week that 53% of voters in America, Republicans, Independents, and Democrats, support the impeachment of Joe Biden for high crimes and misdemeanors. I introduced articles of impeachment on Joe Biden last week because of the national security crisis as our, in our, at our border. I also introduced articles of impeachment against Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for failing to do his duties to secure America's border. But he's only doing the bidding of his boss, Joe Biden. At 5 p.m. yesterday, I released a survey simply on my social media asking, do you support impeachment? 8,600 people responded, and that was just from 5 p.m. last night. 77% said yes, they support impeachment. Only 23% oppose. And if anyone's read the comments on my Twitter account, you know for sure it's not just Republicans that follow me. Joe Biden has deliberately compromised our national security by refusing to enforce immigration laws and secure our border. He has allowed nearly 6 million illegals from over 170 countries to invade our country. He has caused approximately 1,700% increase in border encounters in just one sector of our northern border. Under his reign, there have been approximately 1.4 million known gotaways who have evaded U.S. authorities. 
He has allowed fentanyl, the number one killer of Americans between ages of 18 and 45, to overwhelmingly flood into our country and kill over 300 Americans every single day. Joe Biden should be impeached. In my district alone, we have had an increase of 350% of fentanyl murders. Gentlewoman's uh, time has expired. Thank you. Joe Biden must be impeached. I yield. Members already. All right. All right. So let's just think of that. And I'm going to play you a song. And I'm going to tell you something about it. How's that? Maybe this will be. Uh, well, maybe you should see this. It's more of enjoy the show. The days are cold and the cards all fold and the saints we see are all made of gold and your dreams all fail and the ones we have are the worst of all. 